read the first six verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We could keep on reading. It's a beautiful thing, and we will read each of those subsequent verses. But, Father, right now, we thank you for them. We bless you for them. We ask that you would fill our minds and our hearts with the passion that Paul has for your glory and for the future and, and the beauty that you are creating of the, out of the bride of Christ. I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, enable me to not communicate uh, any error, uh, keep me from stumbling, and help my lips, Father, to be vehicles and tools by which this people are blessed and built up and edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When my father was a little child, uh, his dad taught him to pray for his future wife, and so he began praying for my mom before my mom was even born, quite a few years before she was born, really. And uh, that had a powerful impact, not only on uh, his care for and concern for his future wife, but uh, also upon preparing him to be a godly husband to her. When I was five years old, my father taught me to start praying for my future wife, which was about the year that my wife was born. So I started praying for her about when she was born. And I taught my children from a very early age to pray for their future spouses. I think there is something about doing that that makes a huge difference in your life. But this book indicates something that goes way, way, way beyond that. God set his love upon us before there was a world. He chose his bride, planned her future, laid up blessings for us in Christ, sent his son to save her, and lavished upon us the riches of his grace. He drew us to himself when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and he began the process of turning something not very cool into something that would be a magnificent gift to his son. Uh, this book is an incredible picture of the church of Jesus Christ and the privileges that each Christian has in being part of the bride of Christ. This book was so important to me that I have memorized every word of it. And I'll tell you something, it is impossible to memorize an entire book of the Bible without that having some kind of an impact upon you. It's a book that stirs up your love for God. It stirs up your appreciation for the church worldwide. It really does. Now, this book is divided up into two parts. And uh, the first half is doctrinal. The second half is practical. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 give us the doctrine of how God saved the church and called the church into union with himself through Jesus Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 show us how the church should live out that doctrine in a rubber-meets-the-road kind of a, of a way. That doctrine should affect how we engage in marriage and church and civics and race relations and work and in other areas of life. Now, I'm not going to get into the chart that's on the back side of your outlines that was developed by Chuck Swindoll. Not all of his have captured books super well, but this one was really, really excellent. I thought it was the best one out there. And so for further study, I think you will find it helpful. Ephesians and Philippians have been contrasted by scholars uh, in this way. Ephesians focuses upon the church of Christ, whereas Philippians focuses upon the Christ of the church. I saw people mouthing that after me. They've heard this as well. But it really does, I think, capture that. Both books show a unity between Christ and the church that is so glorious that it is breathtaking. 
And speaking of breathtaking, I challenge you to try to read, maybe you could try this after the service, try to read chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 without taking a breath. <laughs> it's one long sentence in the Greek. One long sentence. Paul is so overwhelmed with the magnitude of what God has done for his people, it's like he doesn't stop for a breath. He excitedly keeps on talking for 202 words in an extra long sentence. Now, I know Stephen Boss says that this is a periodic sentence, and so there really are pauses in it uh, where you probably could take a breath. And uh, so he, he, he wrote that essay to justify putting periods in the English translation. But the fact of the matter is, everybody agrees, this is the longest sentence in the Greek Bible. And to me, this is one of several indicators of the passion and the flow of those verses. And we'll get into that a little bit. Now, I've always been very, very enthused about this book. I said that I had memorized it. I'll tell you a little bad secret about myself. I've got a poor memory. I have memorized it three times and forgotten it three times. <laughs> Uh, in other words, I, I can still recite parts of it, but uh, I cannot go through the entire book word for word. And so in, in this past week, actually a few weeks ago, I started reviewing the book of Ephesians. And once again, it began inflaming my heart with a love for God and a deeper love for his church. It's just the, the sort of thing that it does uh, for us. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. This is one of the epistles that Paul wrote from prison of all places. It's called one of his prison epistles. And interestingly, Paul is so caught up in God's sovereign good pleasure for the church, he doesn't even think of himself as a victim of Rome or as a prisoner of Rome. I want you to take a look at chapter 3 and verse 1 to see how he words his condition. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He didn't even see himself as a prisoner of Nero. Nero couldn't have done a thing against him if Jesus did not will for him to do it. Nero was a pawn in God's hands, and so he was a prisoner of Jesus. Christ is sovereign over Nero, and Christ is using Nero's prisons as a means of undermining Nero's kingdom. In fact, he repeats himself in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which uh, you were called. God had Paul right where he wanted Paul to be. Now, Rome might have thought that it had successfully corralled the gospel by putting him into prison, but what was really going on is that God was going to use this prison to enable Paul to speak to kings and governors and eventually to win converts from the Praetorian Guard. I believe it was the Praetorian Guard in, in Herod's palace uh, rather than in Rome, but there's debate on, on that. Either way, one people from the Praetorian Guard, through the Praetorian Guard, one people from Caesar's own household. Now, that would not have been possible unless Paul had been in prison. How on earth would he be able to have access to any of those people? So here's the point that I make from that. Don't think of your difficult times as a tragedy. Okay, God has you right where he wants you to be. Take advantage of it. Rejoice in it. Have faith that he can advance his kingdom through your apparently imprisoning situation. But let's back up a little bit. Let's give some history on how he got to prison. During the year and a half that Paul was in Corinth, Paul wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and then Paul sailed to Syria with a couple that you probably all know by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And uh, they arrived in Ephesus in Acts 18, verse 19. Had a very, he had a very brief visit, but he left uh, Aquila and Priscilla there, and he commissioned Aquila basically to plant a church there, and apparently he was very, very successful in doing so. Paul went on to Jerusalem, and then God sent a man by the name of Apollos to help out Aquila. Now, they didn't know it at the time. He shows up, and they're just shocked at how powerful he is in his preaching. He had a few mistakes, and uh, Aquila and Priscilla both uh, helped to mentor him in the gospel. Now, while all of that was taking place in Ephesus, Paul was traveling through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the churches there. 
Then Acts 19 says that Paul returned. He probably heard the exciting things that were happening in Ephesus, and he preached the gospel in Ephesus for two years. Acts 19 tells us that Paul cast out demons there, and he rescued numerous people from the occult. How many people got rescued? Well, we have a little bit of a hint. The occult books that these rescued, saved people burned was valued at 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of books. And so Paul was making an enormous dent into the occult in that city, which irritated uh, a lot of people. It certainly irritated uh, Satan. Um, and um, in Acts 19, verse 15, it talks about uh, some sons of Sceva, who was a priest, who thought, this is pretty cool. Paul's casting out demons, making himself rather famous. Maybe we can get in on this fame. So they tried to cast out a demon, and they did it in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And Acts 19.15 records, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And the point of that is, we're powerless against demons apart from Christ, but if we're united to Christ, they are no match for us at all. And Satan, uh, Satan's kingdom took hit after hit from from. Uh, Paul's ministry uh, made a huge dent in those occult practices. Now, one of the reasons Ephesians 6 was written in giving you know, extensive counsel on spiritual warfare is because Ephesus was the, one of the empire's centers for the occult. Here's what Ray Steadman says about that city. It was a city in the grip of superstition, fear, demonism, and darkness. It was a city devoted to sex and to religion. In other words, it was the San Francisco of the Roman Empire. It was a center for witchcraft, superstition, demonism, a weird mixture of black arts, worship of demons, astrology, occult practices of various kinds which filled this city of priests, magicians, witches, warlocks, and quacks of every kind. So I'm saying this just to say if you understand the background from Acts, there is a whole lot more in this book that opens up and begins to make sense. And I'll just give you some other examples very, very briefly uh, of uh, background. Paul has to teach men how to honor, cherish, provide for, and defend their wives. Why? Because of what they were saved out of. If you read the history books, you realize that the men of Ephesus did not treat their wives very well. The, the place was just riddled with all of these temples that had prostitutes in them, and uh, the, 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 the uh, view of women in those, uh, they were not treated well. Uh, sex trade had so abused women in that temple, it was a huge industry. Another example, he counters the drunkenness of Ephesus by putting on the opposite. He shows us how to put off the demonic lies, deceitfulness of politics, education, philosophy, and religion by giving us principles of how to maintain a life of integrity, faithfulness, and truth through the Holy Spirit. His description of, of the attributes of God stand in remarkable contrast to the vile and finite gods and goddesses of Ephesus, such as Diana the Great. Remember, there was a great riot over her in Acts chapter 19. The stranglehold that the guilds had on businesses, it was really hard to run a business without being a member of those guilds, is contrasted by Paul. Well, at least you can see the contrast in Paul when he is describing the kind of loving relationship in Christ that should exist between employers and employees. So the whole book is a masterful paradigm for Christian living. And you see its relevance for today by understanding its relevance to Ephesus in Paul's day. Now, by the time Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he had been seized in Jerusalem, almost killed by the Jews, rescued by the Romans, and held indefinitely in Roman custody in Herod's palace in Caesarea. And when it looked like he might be handed over to the Jews, uh, he appealed to Caesar. Uh, Herod was very close friends with uh, Caesar, and he had a constant stream of uh, Caesar's family vacationing at this vacation resort really is what his palace was, and that's where the Praetorian and where 
You know, it was actually a nice jail to be in. Uh, if you read the background on Paul, God said, here, have a vacation, Paul. We're going to put you up with the best food and the best atmosphere. But anyway, this is how he got in contact with a lot of Caesar's household because there was this constant stream of them coming through that place. But be that as it may, this book is a tribute to how Paul is just caught up with joy and amazement at all that he had in Christ. I mean, earlier the communion message is, is telling us of what our inheritance is. And we tend to look at the glass half empty. You know, we tend to get negative about what we have in life. But I'm going to give you a whirlwind overview of this book that I hope will inspire you to be a praising people, a people who uh, can live by faith. Paul gives three chapters of doctrine that display the magnificent calling that the church has in Christ. Now, the introduction, I want to say, is not a throwaway clause. There isn't anything throwaway in, in the Bible. To people who had been rescued from the occult, it reminded them that they had a new authority, a new revelation, a new calling in life, a complete breaking off of the occult curse by grace and the peace of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words would have brought a lot of comfort to those Christians because Acts 19 indicates they had insulted the gods of, uh, that they had been brought up with, all of the demons, and there could be backlash. They knew the power of those demons. And yet Paul indicates they need not fear any curses that might come from those demons. Now, we tend to think curses is just words. You know, I remember when I was a, a child, uh, I would respond to my tormentors sometime when I knew I could run away fast enough. Uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But I really said it because the words did hurt me. Uh, you know, those uh, psychological wounds inside you carry with you. But that's not what we're talking about with curses. In the Bible, a curse is something that can actually be taken advantage of by a demon, and those demons can afflict you. And so these people who had renounced demonism, renounced the gods of Ephesus, um, were basically going to be encouraged in this book. They have no fear if they have faith in what God has provided. And every verse of this book is something that those from the occult can meditate upon, can claim, and find deliverance from any curses that might be brought. And God replaces them with blessings. That's what the next verse says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Really, the, the whole first half of this book is going to be helping these Ephesians to lay claim to these heavenly blessings and find security in their identity in Jesus Christ. He is their bank account. Every blessing is in him. And by the way, that phrase, in Christ, if you look in your bulletins, you will see that phrase occurs 12 times, in the Lord, another seven, in him, another six times, in whom, another four, in the heavenly places, another five. When you add those up together, you see 35 references to our union to Christ. But let me tell you, those are dwarfed by the images of union with Christ that he will bring up later on in this book, such as... Uh, the church being the temple of Jesus, and he's inside that temple, or the body of Jesus with him being the head or the bride of Jesus or the family of Jesus. Those are the kinds of images that will restore security in the lives of people who have been hurt by sticks and stones and hurtful words. Uh, God, uh, even the lure of the occult, Many times people get into the occult because they want to belong. They want power. They want uh, to be affirmed. It's nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to the privilege of union with God through Christ. I've highlighted every in-statement, just with a little pencil, in chapter 1. Uh, that word, in, is my glory. That word is my security. It occurs 88 times in this book, 88 times. Now, the first glorious privilege in this long, long sentence is God's choice of us. Now, I felt I had kind of chosen my wife long before I knew her because for years I had been praying blessings into her life. But what's remarkable 
about God's choice of us is that he chose us even though he knew us inside and out. He chose us despite our filthy imaginations and bad motives and secret envy and the pain that we bring to God over and over again. He chose us despite how many times we forget him during the day. Uh, he chose us um, and did so not because we were lovable, but because of Christ and what he was going to turn us into. He was going to change unlovable into lovable through Christ and through his spirit. Just as he turned the darkness and the void of the earth in Genesis 1 verse 2 into something spectacular and glorious by the end of age 6, God has a plan for turning his bride into something that's really messy, into something that is so glorious he considers it a gift to his son, a glorious gift to his son. He will turn a hopelessly dead corpse that has no ability into something that blesses his son. Let's read God's glorious and unmerited choice of us in verses 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. Those three verses deserve at least three sermons, maybe more. Uh, they are verses that have made me weep on more than one occasion as I have meditated deeply on God's undeserved kindness in choosing me. Why, why, why would God choose me? Those who think God predestined us because we are so lovable do not understand the gospel at all. It's the exact opposite. I actually had one person tell me, well, there must be something worthwhile about people, otherwise God wouldn't have chosen them. No, it's the exact opposite. It's God who gains the glory. We need to think of him as the potter, us as the clay. Uh, glory in what God did to an undeserving people. And let's uh, let God's grace be lavish too. Look at the lavishness of his grace in verses 7 through 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, it's almost painful to pause as I'm going to be doing through the, this sermon because there's such a, an impetus of his emotion in these words you want to keep reading, but it's also almost as painful not to stop and meditate on each word and draw out the implications of those, which we won't have time to, to do either. But man cannot take credit for any of this lavish grace that has been poured on us. In verses 9 through 12, he speaks of the greatness of God's sovereign purposes. It's not of man who wills. Instead, verse 11 says, being predestined according to the purpose of him who wills all things according to the counsel of his will. It's his will that counts, not ours. In verse 13, we have the steps of salvation. So the Father predestines and plans, the Son purchases and provides, the Spirit applies that redemption and seals us for eternity. Ray mentioned that earlier. You know, when he says here, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, he's not talking about the little seal that you get on baggies, you know, to protect food. In the Some people say, oh yeah, we're sealed and we're protected and fresh. No, no, no. It's a seal on a signet ring. That seal guarantees something. It protects something. It authenticates something. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us promising that having begun a good work in us, he will complete it until the end. Now, it's hard to know for me how much to preach, how much to leave out, um, but I hope to give enough this morning that you'll be stirred up to cherish this magnificent book. Verse 14 speaks of the pledge of the Holy Spirit. Verses 15 through 17, it's a magnificent prayer on behalf of the church by Paul that the church would have their eyes opened to realize the incredible privileges that we have. What does that imply? It implies we tend to be blind to our privileges, right? And we do. We just don't recognize them. And it's not until by the Holy Spirit's enlightening we begin meditating in the book of Ephesians, we start realizing with Paul that this is staggering. This is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Verse 18, what Ray preached on earlier. Verses 18 through 20, 
are almost beyond comprehension in terms of privilege. Just think about this. In what way can the church be said to be, quote, the fullness of him who fills all in all, verse 23? I can't even begin to fathom what that means. How is it possible that we can experience the exact same power that raised Jesus from the grave and seated him at the right hand of the power? That's the power we have access to, verses 19 through 20. It's staggering that we are united with the Christ who is exalted above every principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, verse 21. And we're with him there. We're exalted with him there. We're seated with him in the heavenlies. I mean, these are the descriptions of our position and privilege that are hard to comprehend. But here's the point, and Paul keeps hammering it down. We live so far below our privilege. We live so far below our privileges. And none of it was given to us because we were any good. It's not that we deserve it. He's just saying, have faith, receive it. <laughs> That's all he's asking. Have faith, receive it. Chapter 2 makes clear that uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We didn't deserve any of this. We were dead. We were corpses, spiritually. Corpse does not give life to itself. And so the gospel of Paul is a gospel that humbles the pride of man and causes that same man, once he is saved, to live only to God's glory, God's glory alone. This is the gospel of the Reformation. It is not a man-centered gospel. We glory in God's riches, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. We glory in his, pur uh, his purposes, verses 7 through 10. Uh, you know, I, I tried and tried and tried to find one verse that captured the whole book, and I just gave up. I just wrote down a whole bunch of key verses in your outline. Um, but certainly verses 8 through 10 are ones we ought to memorize. Let me read those for you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, so far, we have looked at the individual blessings that we have in Christ. Each one of us, without exception, is a billionaire. Did you know you're a billionaire, a spiritual billionaire? You are. We're billionaires. We need to learn how to access our spiritual bank account in heaven because uh, Ephesians 1.3, I didn't deal with it when we read through that, but it says we've already been blessed. We have it. We possess all of these things in heaven, and what he calls us to do is write checks upon our bank account in heaven. Now, here's the thing about that bank account. Your check will bounce if you sign your own name. The only way you can get anything from heaven is if you do it in Jesus' name. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Sign your checks in Jesus' name. We died. Legally, we're considered as dead. If you're alive, then you're under God's curse. Legally, we are treated as dead, having been raised with Christ, and we have taken on his name. And by prayer and faith in his name, we are bringing these heavenly blessings into space-time history. So there, there is so much that is crammed into one and a half chapters. It's just amazing. So those are the individual blessings. Having spoken of those, he goes on to talk about corporate blessings in chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 21. Now these two are amazing. In these first verses, we discover that we Gentiles were grafted into the Israel of God and are considered to be true Jews. This is astonishing when you think about it. Let me begin reading at verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, now that word once is the Greek word pata, which means once but no longer. You are no longer Gentiles in the flesh. Now that's astonishing. How on earth could we no longer be Gentiles in the flesh if we're not circumcised as the Jews were? You know, I sometimes am not as clear as I should be on this point, but the church is Israel, the true Israel. So how can that be true for people who are not circumcised? And the answer is that their baptism is considered as a circumcision. So at verse 11 again, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, 
being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, if you skip down to verse 19, you'll see we're not just brought near to God and to the covenants uh, and to salvation, but we're brought right into the commonwealth of Israel. So verse 12 had previously said, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Now look at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. What's a foreigner to Israel? It's a Gentile, right? You're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a holy a dwelling, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Privilege, 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 incredible privilege. And how did he make this miracle happen? How can Jew and Gentile be in the commonwealth of Israel? Verses 14 through 18 explain. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments. He's dealing with ceremonial commandments here. The law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Hallelujah. I mean, these are corporate blessings that he has given to us. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, says that it was precisely for the purpose of revealing this mystery. Okay, this mystery that Jew and Gentile are indeed the new commonwealth of Israel, the true Israel, that Paul's message was needed and the message of the prophets were needed. Okay, chapter 2, verse 20, says that this miraculous new body, this new commonwealth, this new temple was built where on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So just think about this for a sec. Just as you don't need to lay new cornerstones in every century and have multiple Christs in every century, you don't need to lay new foundations or have new prophets and apostles in every century. It was a foundation that was laid once and for all in the first century. So chapter 3, verse 3 says that this mystery was revealed to the Apostle Paul. Then verses 5 through 7 says about this mystery, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So there is the revelational foundation to settle this mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me, by the effective working of his power. Now, this union of Jew and Gentile into Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, was so controversial, it just created havoc in the church for many, many years. Acts 15 was devoted to trying to settle this horrible controversy and say, no, this is a foundational doctrine. But Paul here states that this was the primary purpose for God sending the apostles and prophets to establish the new Israel. It took 12 apostles to rule over the 12 tribes. It took 120 men in the upper room to establish the new commonwealth. It took the 70 prophets sent out by Jesus to equal the 70 prophetic elders under Moses. That makes 190 prophets. We're not even up to all of the women prophets that God established there. But that prophetic task is finished. Foundation is laid. We now have every prophetic utterance we need in the pages of the Bible. And on the basis of this magnificent theology, he issues a call to the church to begin to appreciate the privileges that we have, to begin to appropriate the power that we have, and to begin more fully to glorify God as we should. This theology is transformational in so many ways. One of the ways it's transformational, verses 14 through 15, he says it should transform how you view fatherhood because it says that 
God the Father is the pattern of all fatherhood on earth. Uh, how was that practical at all? Well, I knew a woman one time who had been terrorized by her uh, father, and even the word father conjured up panic and ugly feelings within her. And she didn't want to think of God as a father. She wanted to skip over all of those passages. I encouraged her to do the opposite. I encouraged her to meditate deeply on the love, the care, the generosity, the, all of the characteristics of this wonderful father so as to purge the counterfeit fatherhood that she had experienced and begin to be transformed from within. He would be a father to the fatherless. And it did. It transformed her. It was huge. This theology is transformational for those who are weak. Why? Because it enables us to start realizing, I don't need to live in my own strength. Yes, this is hard for me to do, what God commands me to do, but I have been called to live by His strength rather than my own, to exercise His supernatural love rather than my own, um, to expect greater things from God than we can possibly do on my own. I'm just going to read those verses without comment. They really deserve hours of comment. But let me begin at verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think it's impossible to read and meditate upon words like that without having your heart melted to some degree. These are the kinds of words that stir up hope and faith. But certainly all glory goes to him because he provides everything that we need. For life and godliness. He provides it for the individual. He provides it for the church. These first three chapters are a call to quit living below the privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. We have resources at our disposal that have been barely, barely touched. And in chapters four through six, he will spell out what this theology should look like when it's lived out in a rubber meets the road fashion. By the way, that's Paul's typical passion. Uh, practice. You know, he'll give doctrine, then he'll give application. In verses 1 through 16, this is in chapter 4, he says that when you really grasp this theology, begin appropriating the grace that we have in Christ Jesus, it ought to begin to promote unity where our flesh doesn't want unity. It's just a remarkable thing that begins to happen. By the way, we need the the Holy Spirit for any of these things, but wherever you see discord, lack of unity, divisiveness of tact, it's an indication we're living way below the calling that we have and below our resources. Now, Gary preached on these verses already, so I'm just going to summarize. In verses 1 through 3, we see the fruits of the Spirit needed if we're to have a team spirit. I'll go ahead and read those. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In verses 4 through 6, we see a call to press toward more and more unity in the faith. Not just institutional unity. This is unity in the truth of Jesus Christ. Any unity... Any unity that is not a unity based upon the scriptures and based upon truth is a fake unity. It's really not the kind of unity that we should be, uh, that we should be after. <clears throat> In um, verses 7 through 6, uh, 7 through 11, he says that he has provided everything we need to be able to achieve our high calling. He's already distributed it. Okay, we have the... Um, apostolic and prophetic scriptures. We have officers. We have grace. We have gifts. In verses 11 through 16, he points out that our past does not determine us. You know, for a lot of people, they are chained to their past. And he says, it's not the past that determines us. It's the future that determines us. See, those 
predestined blueprints that he gives for the church will one day be fulfilled. They will be built. That future goal of a unified church that is no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine is a stabilizing church. What difference should that make? Well, I've, I've known people who always want to go back. We want to be an apostolic church. We want to go back to the era of the apostles. I don't. The era of the apostles was a time of infancy, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men. That was the period of the great apostasy. Now, I don't want to go back there. I'm not determined by the past. I am determined by what the apostle Paul says of the blueprints in the future. We need to be Instead of longing for the good old days, we need to be working for the good future days that he has promised, right? That's what should be driving us. Um, so, unity promised by the modern ecumenical movements is a counterfeit. It's not a unity based on truth. It's a fake unity that ignores truths and almost guarantees the perpetuation of false doctrine. How do we achieve the kind of progressive unity that Paul calls for? Well, verses 17 through 32 give us a series of put-offs and put-ons. We won't have time to go through those, but let me give you three samples of what he says we to put off and to put on. We're to put off lying, begin to be vulnerable with each other, transparent, because we're members of each other. There's a trust there. That's verse 25. Verses 26 through 27. We're to put off anger with each other, to put on the realization of who our real enemy is. It's Satan. So you find yourself getting mad at a brother or sister in the Lord. Says, oh, put that off. Realize your real enemy is Satan. Oh, yeah, he's coming between us. Satan, I'm going to get angry at you. I'm going to not be passive any longer. I'm going to fight against the true enemy. In verse 28, we're to put off stealing, to put on a love for hard labor and generosity. And there are very practical ways in which you can do that, which I just don't have time to get into this morning. So in verses 17 through 32, he gives a whole series of things to put off, to put on, and each of those gives us a deeper character than the Pharisees had. Theirs was a superficial sanctification. Um, but I, I do need to move on. I won't take the time to dig into the next sections too much either, but let me quickly outline them for you. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 is a call to love, but it's a call to love as Christ loved us. It's a God-centered measure that requires supernatural grace. You cannot love as Christ loved the church without supernatural grace. That was Christ's point in the Sermon on the, on the Mount. He was making it clear, Phariseeism is not enough. We must be able to do what no unregenerate person can do, to love those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to do good to those who are mean to us. I mean, that takes grace. It is loving as Christ loved us. So those are the evidences we possess the real thing and not a fake Christianity. In verses 3 through 4, we're called to pure living. Even the smallest areas of speech that are tainted by the world are to be put off. So we are to ask God to conquer even the hidden, ungodly sins of the heart. Wow. We're not to be content with others thinking that we're pretty cool. We want God's well done, thou good and faithful servant. In verses 5 through 7, we're told about the seriousness of pure living, that no one who does those things listed in those verses will inherit the kingdom of, uh, of God. Now, let me just clarify here. Um, <clears throat> a true Christian is not a perfect Christian. If you say you're a perfect Christian, 1 John 1 says you're a liar, right? <laughs> we're, we're all going to have sins. But as Kevin Swanson is fond of saying, it's direction, not perfection. We have renounced those deeds of, of darkness, and however stumblingly, we are trying to progress. We might backslide, but we're trying to progress. Here's the point. If you're going the right direction, don't get discouraged. But if you're going the opposite direction, say, oh, no, I'm not going to fight against that sin anymore. It's too tough. I'm going to go backwards this way. He is saying, huh, are you really a Christian? That's exactly what he's saying. Do you have evidence of God's uh, new heart within you? In verses 8 through 14, we are called to walk in the light, to expose the deeds of darkness. And I want you to notice the two sides to that antithesis. We don't just say, okay, we're going to let the light shine in our family. We're going to draw the curtains so that nobody can see the light, but we love this light. We're going to hold it inside. No, he says, let the light shine so that there is antithesis in the world, but that immediately means what? 
you're going to draw fire from the world, right? And most Christians fear that, or at least they're not comfortable with it. They uh, find it inconvenient. But here's what Paul responds. Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The implication is, if you're not allowing the light of Christ to shine out where you're going to get flack, then you're still dead in your sins. In verses 15 through 17, we are called to live by the will of God, and that requires stewarding our circumstances, our time, and our thoughts. I mean, the deeper you dig into Ephesians, the more you realize, Lord, I can't do this. It's just that this is impossible. How can I do this? And he says, that's the whole point. That's why I'm calling you to live by faith. Claim these blessings, this grace from heaven. Stewarding even our thoughts. I mean, think about that. How on earth do you steward your thoughts? That means you've got to throw out daydreaming? Yeah. You've got to be disciplined in your thinking. Well, disciplined in your relaxation, too, because he does call us to relax. And Phil Kaiser is one of the worst people at nighttime because my mind's going and going. I'm not stewarding my thoughts. So this is one of the tasks I've taken on for the next weeks. Lord, help me to steward my, ta- uh, my thoughts. So you can see the implications of the doctrine in the first three chapters is far-reaching. If God has resourced us with as much as those chapters say that he has resourced us, then it should impact how we live. For Paul, doctrine is never theoretical. It is transformational. Another area that should characterize the new man is being filled with the Holy Spirit, verses 18 through 21. This is chapter 5. In fact, that's the only way you can live out these things. But being filled with the Spirit will result in worship and godly submission to God's chain of command. You might think, why? Well, think of it this way. If you're filled with the Spirit, some of His characteristics are going to rub off on you. Okay, the Spirit moves us to worship and glorify the Father. Why? Because it is His passion to glorify the Father and the Son. If we're filled with the Spirit, some of His desire for fulfilling the Father's and the Son's will is going to rub off on us, and we're going to delight in submission. That's what submission is, is carrying out the will of one who is above us. So lack of submission is an indication of lack of being filled with the Spirit. Lack of a desire to sing or to worship is an indication of a lack of being filled with the Spirit. Those who are filled take on the Spirit's passions. Well, let's think about this issue of submission a bit. Keep in mind that submitting to one another in verse 21 is the heading... And then the rest of chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 9, shows how we submit to one another. Now, some people have completely perverted verse 21, and they say children should submit to the fathers, yes, and the fathers should submit to the children, and wives should submit to the husbands, yes, and in exactly the same way, husbands should submit to their wives. That is a ridiculous turning of Paul completely upside down. It completely misses the context. It is the heading... And then he moves on to show, by the way, it's anarchists who tend to do this. They don't like authority at all. But he starts with wives submitting to husbands, not husbands submitting to wives. He then moves on to a discussion of the church, then children submitting to both parents, then men submitting to their masters. And really, when you come to the end of it, you realize every one of us is called to be in submission. I'm called to be in submission to my fellow elders in the session and my elders in the presbytery. And I'm called to be in submission to uh, civic officers. And everyone is in submission. Because we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit makes us delight in the same submission He has to Father and Son. Now, I want to point out one other thing that I think I've missed. All through these sections are amazing metaphors of the wonderful privilege that we have as a church of being united to Jesus. And I think people have messed up on this whole thing. The only image many people have of the church is the bride with the husband. Now, that's a beautiful metaphor, and we're going to see why it's a beautiful metaphor in a bit. But it's not the only metaphor. Some people think the whole church needs to think of itself as feminine. But many of the metaphors um, ignore that they ignore are warfare metaphors. For example, the church is called Jacob. Uh, Jacob is hardly feminine, right? And it's called an army. And it's called a flock. 
and an olive tree, and a loaf of bread, and a vineyard, and a brotherhood, and a city, and a household, and a temple. And I mean, there's many, many metaphors that are given, and each one gives a different facet of what the church uh, should act like and should look like. We tend to focus exclusively on the bride imagery, when in reality there are many masculine images, such as the church is a warrior, or is an ambassador, or is a citizen of his kingdom, or is an army. But having said that, the images that Paul chose in this book are particularly powerful in showing the enormous privilege that we have of union and communion and privilege in our relationship with God. Let me just quickly outline Ephesians' uh, images. He picks the images of a body with Christ as the head. That, that's a remarkable image of unity. He, he picks the image of a temple with Christ within that temple. That shows the intimacy in our relationship with him. Uh, he picks an image of a building with Christ as the foundation, a commonwealth with Christ as the king, a bride with Christ as the husband, and a kingdom with Christ as the king. There is so, such privilege and power that we have access to that those images declare that it is scandalous that we think of ourselves as paupers or hopeless or helpless. We really have much more. In fact, that's really the enemy's tactic to get us to quit living by faith. Even the image of Christ on the throne has us with him on that throne. I mean, it's just astounding to me. In fact, we, we skipped over that, so why don't you turn back to chapter 2, verse 6. I want, you to, I want you to see that. 2, verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Each one of you are kings and queens with Jesus, seated with him on his throne. He has ushered us into enormous power. And then the next verse, verse 7, gives the purpose for this tremendous authority and privilege that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's the destiny for planet Earth. We have a role in taking Earth there, but it can only happen as we pray and act with the authority that we have in Christ Jesus. Are we showcasing the exceeding riches of his grace to a helpless world? Are we praying by faith from that throne? That's the kind of authority that results in victories in the spiritual battle outlined in the last section of the book, chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Verses 10 through 11 give two commands, and both relate to the same battle. Verse 10 makes it clear Christ alone can, is the one who can win those battles through us. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And it's in his strength we fulfill the command in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And many commentators point out this whole imagery of armor is really putting on Christ. When you look at the Old Testament passages that it's based on, it's putting on Christ. Now, in verse 12, Paul wants us to understand the nature of this battle that we're in. We are aligned against demonic powers that are controlling America and controlling other facets of this world. And our commission, this is a humongous commission, is to wrest that control from the demonic hands by resisting them through the power and strength we have in Christ. I need to learn to do that better. I think the church corporate needs to learn to do that better. Um, without the belt of truth, let's just go through some of these very, very briefly. I won't get in, in depth. But without the belt of truth, none of the other pieces of armor stick together. And that belt is not truth as we define it. It's the truth of Christ, the Scriptures. Jesus said, Thy word is truth. So we must start and end our days with truth. We must saturate our lives with truth. If we buy into the, the devil's idea that God's truth, the Scriptures, only applies to a slice of life, then we've basically taken off the armor and all of the other parts because the armor doesn't hold together without that belt. We've got to use truth in everything the truth of Scripture. Okay, without the breastplate of righteousness, we're vulnerable. Our vital organs are, are exposed to the enemy's attacks, but it's not our righteousness, it's Christ. The imputed righteousness of Christ gives us security. His imparted righteousness gives us power. We're putting on Christ. Without the sandals of the gospel of peace, we grow weary in our walk. We want to stray from the path. 
We must preach the gospel to ourselves every single day and share the gospel with others and allow the gospel to really saturate everything that we do. It is, after all, the gospel of the kingdom. Without the shield of faith, we won't make advances. And actually, I want to end the sermon by explaining just a few details about that shield of faith because I think this is one of the most misunderstood pieces of armor. The Greek word for shield is thurios. Most pictures of this armor that you see on the web do not picture the correct shield. There are two shields in, um, in, in, in the Greek. Roman soldiers had two types. The first type was the aspis shield. That was the very common shield. It was about two feet in diameter, very light. It was for hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then there was the thurios shield that covered your entire body. It was like a solid piece of wood covered with metal, or in some cases it was covered with well-oiled leather. And the soldiers who carried these shields were in the front lines of the battlefield, and almost always the thurios shields were used side by side to form a gigantic shield, sometimes a mile long. Okay, so it's a corporate is used for corporate a shield, not a defensive weapon. I mean, it does sort of do defenses because when you're going up against, if these guys are the, the wall, you know, they're going to be shooting at us. And so the archers would crouch down behind the first line that had that thurios when the arrows came. And as soon as the volley ceased, they'd be uh, throwing their arrows back. So it's defensive in a sense, but it's offensive in that it was always used when they were taking on the front lines. Um, so this speaks not only of an individual faith, but a corporate faith of what God can do. Now, some of you have probably seen pictures of the tortoise shield that the Romans used. They would use these shields on the front here, and then they would just go like a big shell over their heads and back, and so they were completely surrounded. And when they approached a wall, there was nothing but pouring oil or boulders that could get through that. It literally quenched all the fiery darts of the enemy. So um, when the church as a whole has an atmosphere of faith, this is what we're talking about, there is nothing that can penetrate its defenses. It's extremely effective. It says, not some, but it says, that shield will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's impressive. Now, you may not have thought of corporate faith as being as significant as individual faith is, but it, it really is. And many churches, I think, are in trouble because they lack corporate faith. And let me illustrate. Matthew 13, 58 says about Jesus, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their, plural, unbelief. Mark words it, now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, what kind of faith was lacking? I would say it's not individual faith. There was individual. Christ had faith. His disciples had faith. There were some people get healing, got healed who had faith. But corporate faith was lacking. There was a lack of their faith. There was no Thurion shield. Where a whole congregation evidences faith in God's power, far more awesome things happen than when you do things alone. Healing, for example, takes place far more frequently in congregations that has a corporate faith that believes in healing. It's just the way it is. I think it's one of the reasons a theologically deficient church that has incredible faith can sometimes achieve far more than our church can. Because we don't have corporate faith like that in at least certain areas. We've got corporate faith in areas they don't. But this is why we need to think about these. So let's look quickly at how expressing our faith together gives a synergy and strengthening of individual faith and I think is critical to battle. One of the scariest weapons in ancient warfare was fire. What they would do is the enemy would wrap an arrow in cloth and stick it in melted boiling pitch, and then they would light it on fire and shoot it. And when it hit anywhere in the enemy's ranks, when it hit, there would be blobs of this pitch burning that would go everywhere and light everything that was um, burnable on fire. And hopefully it would touch skin. I've had burning pitch on me, and you can't get it off. It just keeps burning. It's horrible. But here's the point of these shields. Um, when approaching a city to try to scale a wall or to pound down the gates with a battering ram or when building a siege works over the wall, soldiers would raise these Thurion shields over their heads and form a, a tortoise 
in a minute I'm going to be sharing just a couple of scriptures which talk about God walling us in, shielding us above, before, behind, surrounding us with his shield. In terms of the physical shields, short of dropping boulders, as I've said, or boiling oil, they could not get at them. They could not touch them. They were extremely effective. And I've already mentioned that the shield was used during the offensive periods of battle because it was way too heavy to carry on a horse or to carry his foot soldiers. You drug it. I mean, it was heavy. Um, but um, this shield, I think, is the shield we need to do. It's inconvenient to have a corporate body there in faith. We need this when we go to the abortion clinic, okay? Uh, when we're asking God to do mighty things. We need corporate faith on the front lines of the battlefield. This is the kind of shield we need when we talk to senators about ending abortion now type bills. This is the kind of shield we need when going downtown to evangelize. In, a, in Genesis 15 verse 1, God told Abraham, I am your shield. When Abraham had faith in God, God himself shielded him. Now that's encouraging because if God's the shield, it's an infallible shield. No darts can get through. Uh, David said in 2 Samuel 22, the God of my strength and him I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Psalm 512 says this is an all-encompassing shield. You will surround him as with a shield. What kind of shield surrounds? It's a Thurion shield. But all these passages that I just read and many others indicate that God acts as a shield only when we come with faith in him. For example, Psalm 1830, he is a shield to all who trust him. The shielding is not automatic. We must trust. And as our trust is focused jointly on issues, it is far more effective. Now, I won't go over any of the other weapons except to say that prayer is a weapon. Uh, Paul considered prayer to his success as essential to his success and the success of that church. We must become a praying church if we want to see demons scattered and Christ's kingdom advanced. Well, Paul closes by telling them that Tychicus will fill them in on everything that's been happening to him, but he doesn't fill them in. It's almost as if the few details that we have here is that Paul is so consumed with a passion for God and his church that nothing else captures his imagination. And it's my prayer that we would catch some of the fire of his passion from this book. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us with incredible blessings. You have blessed us exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we could ask or think. And I pray that you would help us to have faith, to lay claim to these blessings. Many times when we pray, we don't even pray in faith, believing that you will answer. And yet you have so generously said, ask and you shall receive. So Father, help us to be grounded in the theology of Ephesians so that in asking, we would receive from your throne and have everything that we need to accomplish the task that you have called us to accomplish. Bless this, your people, with this book. In Jesus' name, amen.